Coming up, we'll tell you why mail-in voting could lead to weeks of chaos and mayhem after the election. Mitch McConnell says that Barack Obama should not get involved in the president's handling of the pandemic. Uh, A caller left me a voicemail, made a great point. You know, Dr. Fauci today testified before the Senate. He testified remotely because he's under quarantine. And Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, he's... Senator Rand Paul is a big proponent, as you'd expect, of reopening the economy as soon as possible and of no more bailouts and no more trillion-dollar relief packages. Anyways, Rand Paul is grilling Dr. Fauci on, you know, can why can't we reopen the economy? And Dr. Fauci at one point says, I don't give economic advice. I don't give health advice. In other words, Rand Paul basically saying to Dr. Fauci, how can you be recommending that we keep the economy closed, with Dr. which Dr. Fauci is very strongly in favor of extending restrictions possibly for months? And Rand Paul says, listen, look what you're doing to the economy. And Fauci says back, I only give health advice. I don't give economic advice. And here's where that's misleading. And this is the caller's point, I believe, which is you're giving economic advice. By definition, the two are intertwined. Because when you talk about extending the restrictions and extending the lockdown, you are, by definition, giving economic advice. See, if this would not affect the economy, let's say there were no negative repercussions to the economy uh, during a lockdown, right? Just a question of isolating people, right? So, Or, or let's say, for, for argument's sake even, you know, you could extend the lockdown restrictions, but it wouldn't interfere with people's lives. You know, then it would be a no-brainer. The health issue is, well, the more people stay apart, the fewer germs that are spread, the better it is for everybody's public health, right? Of course, it'll stop the spread of the outbreak the more people stay isolated. So the decision here is an economic decision because that's what makes this the toughest call. That's what makes this so incredibly difficult. And, and, and the reason people are so staunchly in favor of reopening the economy, some people, is because of the devastation, because of the catastrophic results here of having a, an extended lockdown. So by definition, you cannot separate the health decision, the health advice from the economic advice. You know, similarly, imagine if an ec- economist said, President Trump, we have to reopen the economy tomorrow. We have to do this. I don't care what the repercussions are. And he said, well, I'm only giving economic advice, not health advice. Well, if you reopen the economy, obviously that's going to have a massive impact on public health and on the pandemic. So you, the two are intertwined. What Dr. Fauci should be saying is, listen, I don't know what to do because I'm a health person. I'm not an economist, so I can't really give. I can give my opinion. And maybe that's what he's saying. But the problem is that you know he certainly is very strong in his recommendations. I'm not saying he's wrong. I want to be clear here. But don't tell me you're not giving economic advice. You're only giving health advice. You know, he should say, listen, and you could make, you could go even further, by the way, because from a health standpoint, maybe you could say that it's always better for everything to be shut down. Look, people spread the flu. People spread all sorts of infections, right? You know how many germs and everything gets spread? All right, you'll say, well, it builds herd immunity, whatever. But I'm just saying you can make a case that if it weren't for, you know, I understand there's mental health issues and a lot of different factors, but you can make the case, listen, if it wasn't for the economy, then everybody could just stay home as much as possible. And guess what? It, It would be healthier. It would technically be healthier, obviously, other than emergency situations. And the point of this is doctors only see the health standpoint, that when you're a doctor, your job is to prevent the spread of disease and to cure and treat disease and illness. That is your job. Your job is not to help strengthen the economy. Just like an economist, I wouldn't expect to sit there and say, you know what, Uh, I'm going to let businesses close down and that's worse for the economy, but it's going to help keep people safer. That's not your job. When you're a policeman, your job is to keep people safe. But the problem is then Dr. Fauci is in no better a position to make decisions than an economist would be. You kind of have to have a middleman, which is maybe President Trump's role here, but... Or you can just decide, listen, we don't care about the economy. Health is too important. That's fine. But Dr. Fauci to be saying, listen, 
I'm not getting involved. I just do health. I believe that that is, you know, pretty misleading. You know, and and, and that's a great point. CNN had a headline saying Trump goes on tweet storm to distract from Dr. from Fauci testimony, from Fauci's testimony. Egregious. It's egregious. CNN in an article had a headline. Trump goes on tweet storm to distract from Fauci testimony as though Trump is threatened by Fauci's testimony. How does CNN know? Did President Trump send an email to CNN? Did he write a letter to CNN? Did he call them and say, by the way, I'm going on a tweet storm now because I want to distract from Fauci testimony? It's not an op-ed, by the way. This is a regular news story. So CNN like decided this is objective news that, you know why Trump is going on a tweet storm? Because he wants to distract us. He doesn't want us to hear Dr. Fauci. The, the man, by the way, President Trump put Dr. Fauci in front, having a press briefing in front of the entire country for weeks and weeks and weeks until the media took advantage of it and started twisting everything around and distorting everything. But uh, so Trump has never, try, has never tried to hide Dr. Fauci. I understand he's not letting them go, go, go testify before the House because he knows the Democrats are going to pull all sorts of shenanigans. But CNN, good morning. Trump goes on tweet storms all the time. He, How do you explain like his tweet storm that he does every third day? Does Dr. Fauci testify every other day? I mean, you need to come up with a reason. President Trump is on a tweet storm today. Why? Because he's conscious. Because he's awake. All right. Uh, in case some of you did not, I assume most of you know my sense of humor at this point. I, I was joking yesterday when, when I said that uh, the snow proves that global warming is man-made because now that, I mean, it's absurd for, for multiple reasons, and uh, Al Gore is not right, and when I said that, I said it as a joke, which I'm sure many of you understood. I got the impression from some voicemails that maybe some people took me seriously, so I really should clarify when I'm kidding. Um, according to a report from Bloomberg, mail-in voting could lead to chaos and mayhem for many weeks following the election, and is this any surprise? And they're saying that it actually could turn into another 2,000. Some of you may be too young to remember, but I remember it vividly uh, in the year 2000, th this country that was a massive conflict and controversy because uh, it took many, many weeks and ultimately the Supreme Court decided that uh, President Bush was in fact the president and he had beaten Al Gore and it came down to dangling chads, which was you know a certain type of voting card and the, the little hole that you punch is called a chad. We won't get into all that right now, but uh, it was a very, very Ugly, you know, people think that only President Trump, that Trump era has led to all sorts of ugly politics. Oh, you should have seen it back then, the ugliness between Democrats and Republicans when it was Bush versus Gore. They're saying it could happen again. They're saying tens of millions of Americans are going to. There's already been a bunch of states that are saying you can do mail in ballots even if you don't have any kind of reason. So in other words, you're, it's, you're automatically eligible in many states. So they're saying tens of millions are going to are gonna opt for that now because of the coronavirus and not wanting to go out in public. And who knows where things will stand in November. So what they're saying is, Bloomberg, they're going to be charges of cheating, lawsuits, and demands for recounts. And it's going to be anything but a fair, open, a fair and open election, which is what America always prides themselves on. And you have, and of course, isn't it obvious? Of course, mail-in votes could lead to just so many different bad scenarios. It could just be such a disaster on so many levels. And of course, fraud and cheating and court cases and lawsuits. It's going to be a disaster. And the Democrats support it. The Republicans don't. And it can only lead you to conclude that Democrats they want chaos. They want the election to be fraudulent. And the reason is pretty much the bottom line is because there are many reasons they want to commit the fraud, but they also want to be able to blame the Republicans for cheating when they lose the election. So they always want to have that in their back pocket and delegitimize any Republican victory. 
the DOJ crackdown. This is a bombshell, another bombshell in the Michael Flynn case. We're getting them daily now. Thank you, A.G. Barr. I don't know what you've been waiting for. And this one actually is DNI, the new DNI, Acting Director of National Intelligence, Richard Grenell. And he, they are going to be declassifying, or they already have declassified, a list of Obama officials who were involved in the unmasking of Michael Flynn. So they are starting, the DOJ is starting to reveal, or whoever, the DNI or whatever, it's all the same bureaucrats, but they're starting to reveal who the Obama officials were in the White House who unmasked the identity of Michael Flynn and his conversation with uh, Sergey Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. And we told you about this, that it was Barack Obama who informed James Comey and Sally Yates. So it came from the White House. Intel is not supposed to come from the White House to the FBI. It doesn't work that way. But when it's corrupt intel and when it's the, pre the outgoing Democrat president trying to sabotage the incoming Republican, that's why it worked in this direction. It's never supposed to happen this way. We have a White House official uh, eavesdropping on all these Trump campaign officials' conversations with foreign leaders. It's really, it's, it's totally, it's more than outrageous. It's like borderline treason. Not, no exaggeration. Anyway, so the DNI has already declassified um, the list of Obama officials who unmasked Michael Flynn. And you know about this, where they're not allowed to spy on an American, obviously, but they'll inadvertently spy on Americans, the NSA, when they spy on foreign leaders like the Russian ambassador. And then they'll have an American on the other side who gets masked. But then uh, people who have uh, access to classified people who have top levels of security clearance are able to unmask the identification. And of course, they did it. I believe it was Susan Rice, but they did it for the sake of um, uh, pure, pure politics, basically, because there was no national security reason that they had to unmask Michael Flynn. And, and by the way, last week, Richard Grinnell, acting DNI, he brought this list of Obama officials with him to the DOJ, and that was the same week that Attorney General Barr dropped the charges against Michael Flynn. So this is going to get really interesting. Why is it taking so long? I will never know. A.G. Barr has been there for a, quite a while already at this point. But it's certainly you do you do get the vibes that there are going to be indictments handed down against Obama officials. Don't hold your breath. Um, the latest this is outrageous. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has unveiled another economic relief package, a three trillion dollar economic relief package. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to pressure Republicans. They almost want the Republicans to reject it. But uh, another three trillion dollars when we've already spent all this money is really, really ridiculous, but uh, without cutting spending. But it's called the HEROES Act. But here's what's interesting. Part of this package includes $20 million for the foundations for the arts and humanities to manage expenses during the pandemic. You mean to tell me we need to be bailing out the foundations for the art and humanities? This is just beyond outrageous that uh, they would get $10 million each, the National Endowment of the Humanities, National Endowment of the Arts. And by the way, they already got in the CARES Act, which was the last relief act, these two um, foundations got $75 million each. So now Pelosi wants to give them each another $10 million on top of $75 million in taxpayer dollars. Let them go bankrupt. Let them fundraise. Let them figure out a way. Why do my tax dollars have to go and pay for the humanities and the arts? I mean, totally, totally insane. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas gave a speech in the Palestinian Authority, and he threatens, he says that he's going to pull out any agreement that he has with Israel he is going to pull out of that agreement and totally renege on any agreement if Israel annexes even a single centimeter of land in Shomron, in the Jordan Valley. 
um, or any other piece of Palestinian territory. Mahmoud Abbas is threatening he's not going to abide by any agreement. Does he have any agreement that he actually with Israel that he actually does abide by at this point? I mean, he spends hundreds of millions of dollars to give to the families of terrorists. He literally sponsors all these terror attacks against Israel. So I don't know exactly you know what would change if he pulls out. Now I'm really going to commit terror acts. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? Abbas said, and interestingly, Abbas said that um, he he actually blames, he says, you can't just blame this on Israel. He says, this is the United States. He's blaming Trump. So interesting. We know that Mahmoud Abbas has been very, very demeaning and very disrespectful in his treatment of President Trump. And he views Trump as the enemy because Trump is one of the first people in the White House to actually have the have the have the guts to crack the courage to crack down on the Palestinians and call them out for the evil terrorist monsters that they are. So um, Abbas says that, you know, the United States can't go and say, well, Israel's calling the shots. Israel's annexing. We have nothing to do with this. Here's what Abbas said. And he's right. Here's what he said. Quote, they cannot say to us, we have nothing to do with this. Israel is making these decisions. The deal of the century came from America. All of the American officials talked about it multiple times, the Secretary of State and others. They said this deal would be implemented. We will not wait for its implementation. The moment this is declared, we will consider ourselves no longer bound by all the agreements we signed. Abbas also insisted that the true number of Palestinian refugees from 1948 is 950,000. He says people claim that it's less. People claim this this issue with the refugees and the right of return also outrage. It's totally, it's totally, totally, you know, just insane because. A refugee is somebody who was displaced. The problem is the people who were displaced in 1948, there's very few of them remaining on this earth. So the UN counts 950,000. Abbas says there's other people who claim it's only 250,000 or 850,000. That's a lie. It's 950,000 because the UN is counting the children and the grandchildren. Like, where does it end? They're basically counting all these Palestinians who have never, ever stepped foot in Israel. But somehow they are displaced Palestinian refugees from 1948. I mean, it's just absurd. Um, and, and, and nobody believes it. But again, the UN, you, they do it because it, it's good talking points. And the mainstream media will just report it. Oh, there are 950,000 Palestinians who Israel occupying, who they have a right to come to come back to Israel because they were displayed. It's, it's just it's just absurd. Uh, Michael Steele has blasted uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader. Michael Steele is a Republican. He's the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. So we've got some infighting amongst the Republicans. And what happened was Mitch McConnell blasted Obama because McConnell says Obama should not be getting involved in you know President Trump's uh, handling of the pandemic or any other Trump policies the same way that George W. Bush never spoke out against Obama. There's kind of this unwritten rule that the previous president you know, does not criticize the current president. Now, I, I you can make the case, and it's a val it's a valid point that. President Trump kind of all bets are off. President Trump kind of throws the rules out the window because generally speaking, you don't have a, a sitting president who criticizes the outgoing president of the past. It'll happen. They'll like take, you know, these very subtle jabs. They'll talk about, you know, different policies if it was somebody in the other party usually. Uh, in, in President Trump's case, he'll just bash everybody. So he'll bash George W. Bush also, as we know, even though they're in the same party. But um uh, but Michael Steele, here's what's interesting about his quote. So, so, so McConnell blasted Obama. Michael Steele blasted Mitch McConnell. He said, quote, he said that I'm sure Mitch is aware that a grown black man who happens to be a former president has agency to speak his mind on how his successor is managing this crisis, especially since his successor has yet to uh, be quiet about him. And uh, what happened was McConnell called Obama class. Let's read you Obama's line here. 
in a moment. But um, the 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 point. The, I'm sorry, McConnell. I'll read you on McConnell. We told you what Obama said already this week, but we'll tell you what McConnell said in a moment. But what's interesting, Michael Steele, I believe, is black, and he's saying that Mitch is aware that a grown black man happens who happens to be a former president has agency to speak his mind. I, I, I don't know what he means, a black man. I would think that a white man also has the right to speak his mind about the president. I don't see why you have to bring race into this. And that, to me, is a little bit troubling, implying, to me, the, what he's implying there is Mitch McConnell is a racist because by bashing Obama, and I can't stand those kinds of ridiculous politics where just because Obama happens to be black, you're a racist if you criticize him. So here's what McConnell said. He said, I think President Obama should have kept quiet. He, we, we know he doesn't like much this what the, that this administration is doing. That's understandable. But I think it's a little bit classless, frankly, to critique an administration that comes after you. You had your shot. You were there for eight years. I think the tradition that the Bush has set up of not critiquing the president who comes after you is a good tradition. That's what McConnell said. And Michael Steele said, I'm sure Mitch is aware that a grown black man who happens to be a former president has agency to speak his mind on how his successor is managing this crisis, especially since his successor has yet to keep quiet about him. So there's your back and forth. Op-ed in the Hill. This is so frightening how the Democrats are going to try to create universal basic income out of this crisis. They are going to try to take advantage of this crisis um, to implement what they've been desperate for, which is the socialist policies like universal basic income. They're like they're chomping at the bit here. You know, they're like licking their chops like, oh, wow. We finally have a chance here. We have such a monumental economic crisis. There's no way out. And and we and you know how we know this is true? Because Chuck Schumer said it's true because he said they're going to implement FDR new types of policies, New Deal types of policies. Rooseveltian was the word that he used. They're, go, they're going to implement policies similar to FDR. FDR is, is the one who hurtled the country in the direction of socialism, created all these programs which were supposed to be temporary, which ended up being permanent. And that's what this Hop in the Hill is about. Um were they essentially written by uh, some by some conservative that I never heard of, seemingly conservative, who who essentially says now the Hill is mainstream media. They are biased to the left, but um, but they still once in a while have these pro-conservative op-eds, and 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 it's entitled "Universal Basic Income and the End of the Republic." And essentially saying that, yeah, don't believe this drivel where they say, oh, it's going to be temporary. It's We need it for relief package. So here's what he says. He says that basically Democrats, they want these spending uh, relief packages to continue indefinitely. Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, who, by the way, is considered like a top contender to be a running mate for Joe Biden, which how frightening is that? Here's what she said in a tweet, quote, bills come in every single month during the pandemic and so should help from our government. So she is supporting, basically saying, listen, the bills are not stopping, so we have to keep these relief packages going. And she's endorsed a plan called the Monthly Economic Crisis Support Act. She's endorsed this plan that would send $2,000 a month to any Americans who make less than $120,000 per year. That's a lot. And that sounds great. I, I, I told you, you know, I got my stimulus payment. I mean, what could feel better than having uh, thousands of dollars uh, deposited directly into your bank account? compliments of the federal government they want us addicted to that and it feels good so now she's saying married i mean she, this is we're talking about insane amounts of money there's one slight problem with this who on earth is going to pay for this i mean the, the the deficit is is eclipsing anything that we've ever seen in in, in history so two thousand dollars a month to americans who make less than one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year every american is getting two thousand dollars a month according to kamala harris married couples getting four thousand dollars a month two thousand dollars for each child this would be a dream for the firm community until the country goes bankrupt and gets overtaken by China or Russia. 
And um, so here, I'm going to read you from this op-ed. The checks would be sent for up to three months after the crisis ends. That raises an interesting point. When and how will we know the crisis has ended and the payments will be stopped? That alone should raise one's eyebrows. American history is full of examples of government programs that were intended to be temporary and continue to this day. And I'm going to interject here for a moment. That's exactly what we've been telling you, is if you look at the history, this is always how it happens. Income tax was never meant to be. It was an amendment, but it was never meant to be this broad and sweeping. That wasn't the intent at all, but once the amendments passed, Boom, you gave Congress the uh, the ability. They're never going to give it back. The, 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 the New Deal, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, all these social programs, they all started off small and they weren't going to get it. They were just going to help the very, very super needy. And then they expand and expand. And next thing you know, you have Obamacare and these you know uh, programs that literally take up half the federal budget, which aren't even in the Constitution. Back to the Hill. Several provisional measures and programs enacted during the Great Depression are still in place today. A cynic might say that some Democrats are using the crisis as an opportunity to push their progressive agenda. You're kidding. For years, many on the far left have advocated monthly government programs in the form of universal basic income. Andrew Yang made the UBI, the universal basic income, a pivotal part of his campaign, received lots of attention and acclaim for doing so. Remember the Yang gang. The Green New Deal, a wish list for the far left, contains a universal basic income to provide economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work. Yes, the architects of the Green New Deal want the U.S. government to pay Americans even if they just don't want to work. And um, uh, again, I'll make the point, and he makes the summer here in this in this op-ed, which is they've been pushing these programs for years. Any Democrat who says, I have a great program that's going to help bring relief to the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, by the way, we've been pushing the socialist agenda for years. Uh, obviously, they're not trying to help with the coronavirus. Now, the founder of MSNBC says that Joe Biden is not yet ready for prime time. <laughs> this is great. This is Tom Rogers. He's currently the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, and he's the founder of MSNBC. He said, quote, Trump has been dominating the media, as we all know, and Biden has not been in the spotlight, but that's going to shift, and when it shifts, Biden needs to perform. The bottom line is the candidate needs to be able to articulate a clear and convincing message, and particularly when it comes to the pandemic, He's not there yet, and it pains me to say this. It really does, but his performance in being able to come up with a compelling narrative and a passionate storyline that really is ready for prime time when it comes to talking about the legacy of Donald Trump of mass death and economic collapse, he's not there yet. His performances have been very unsatisfying, and basically he's been getting softball interviews. So essentially, the statement here is, in addition to the fact that Biden has not been able to form any kind of coherent strategy, any kind of compelling messaging, and look, it leads you to wonder, and he says this this um, uh, Tom Rogers, he says, it pains me to say this, it really does. I'm sure it does. If I were a Democrat, I'd be in a lot of pain, thanks to, you know, if Joe Biden was my candidate. I mean, I would be just, dep- I'd be tearing my hair out. I'd be so depressed if I had a candidate. I'm saying that objectively. You know, I, I've, I've bashed Republicans whom I thought would not be good representatives of the party, but he makes an interesting point. He says that, uh, he says Biden's performances have been unsatisfying and he's been getting softball interviews. Biden only goes on these cable networks that are very, very friendly to him and just ask him these softball questions. And despite that, you would think the softball questions and interviews, that would be the perfect forum or Joe Biden reading from a teleprompter. That would be the ideal forum for Joe Biden to be in total control and thus to be able to, you know, really form a compelling message, compelling narrative to really sweep people off their feet. And if he can't do it, then what's going to happen when he does the tough interviews? It's going to have to happen eventually. Or if not, then it's going to happen at a debate. 
And when he's up against Trump, can you imagine Biden versus Trump in a debate? To me, it's like it's it's a slam dunk. I mean, to me, Trump is just going to literally crush Joe Biden in any debate. And finally, Democrats, in addition to the National Humanities, Arts, whatever, the foundation, they also want to have a massive bailout for the U.S. Postal Service. The Democrats, part of their stimulus package legislation, they want a massive bailout of the Postal Service. And Trump says, no way. We need major reforms. He said the Postal Service is a joke. He literally said that. And he said the Postal Service, they are they're, it's just a circus. They're just, they're just so backward. And they lose so much. They're losing so much money. The Postal Service is supposed to support itself. You you, you understand? They're a delivery service. UPS is a private company, a delivery service that does something similar to the U.S. Postal Service, only they do it better, and uh, very often they do it cheaper, and they're efficient, and they're profitable. FedEx is profitable. So why can't the U.S. Postal Service? It's inexcusable. There was a time before there were any private companies that did this. So the Postal Service could say, well, listen, we're just going to break even at best. But now that we know that it's a very profitable business to be in the delivery business, that shows you that the Postal Service is only such a failure because and, and, and losing money because it's government-run. So any anything government-run is, is just a joke by definition, right, as we know. So President Trump and Republicans, they say, no way. We're not going to just bail out the Postal Service. They've got to reform. And one thing Trump says, and he's right, he says they've got to charge Amazon a lot more money. Basically, Amazon uses the Postal Service and the Postal Service, Amazon's profiting a ton off of it and the Postal Service is losing money. Trump says, well, you got to charge Amazon more for using the Postal Service. Great point. So Nancy Pelosi, she says she's including a $25 billion bailout in the the next massive economic uh, relief package. She says, we have to fight for the Postal Service. People across the country are all tweeting and writing to me saying, protect our post office. And uh, who else? Denny Hoyer, House Majority Leader, Democrat. He says it's an essential service we need to maintain. And there's a consensus among Democrats. And President Trump said no chance. He says they've got to issue massive reforms, implement massive reforms. Why do the Democrats love defending these government-run agencies that are a total joke, that are a total disaster, that like in, in, in the private industry, they would literally flop and just lose millions and go bankrupt and yet the democrats love defending them because they're government agencies it's really it's it's very disturbing it's just it's just it's just bizarre it's not even like i'm not even going to use the word you know outrageous it's just almost bizarre it's like laughable these democrats they almost they they make a mockery of themselves right government accountability office released a report uh last week saying that the postal service suffered a net loss of 78 billion dollars between 2017 and 2019 this is pre-pandemic the postal service lost 78 billion dollars are you kidding me and we're gonna bail them out and give them billions of dollars this is ridiculous this is uh, from the report government accountability office the gao the Postal Service's current business model is not financially sustainable due to declining mail volumes, increased compensation and benefits cost, and increased unfunded liabilities and debt. Absent congressional action on critical elements of the uh, Postal Service's business model, the Postal Service's mission and financial solvency are increasingly in peril. And they have demanded, Republicans have demanded, that the Postmaster General, Megan Brennan, produce a 10-year business plan to reform 
the postal service, the postal, and now they're going to, of course, lose more, more money because of the pandemic, but they were already losing $78 billion before this pandemic ever started. It was unsustainable before, so don't use the virus as an excuse. And President Trump said that they've got to find a way to generate revenue and just to break even, just break, forget profits, just break even so that the taxpayers don't have to fund you. You provide a very critical, essential service. And Trump says, charge Amazon more money. That's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.